If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Kristen Romanelli, who is the managing editor of Film Score Monthly Online. She's joining me today as we discuss Back to the Future from 1985. We'll discuss the cast, the background, some of the technical aspects on the film, and some unique features of the classic DeLorean. And we'll also gush about the movie and the amazing score by Alan Silvestri. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Welcome to Soundtrack Alley. Today I've got Kristen Romanelli with me. Hi Kristen, it's fantastic to have you on my show. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, it's just such a blast to be able to have some cross uh, blending of different podcasts that you've been on the Soundcast and (laughs) it's so great to have you on my show. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about Back to the Future. Yay! <laughs> what are your initial thoughts on Back to the Future? And when did you first see the movie? Let's see. Now, I can't remember if I saw the first one or the second one first. Um, I feel like I saw one of them like at a babysitter's house in the 80s when I was maybe seven or eight years old, um, mm-hmm. like on cable. Um, but I definitely have a strong memory of having Back to the Future Part 2 on a recorded VHS, and I would watch that over and over again. Um, and at some point I saw the first one, and I definitely saw the third one in the theater. So, um, it, it's been around, yeah. around for a while for me. <laughs> I, I totally understand, because I'm the same way. It's like... I think I think initially I had seen Back to the Future 2 a lot, but I mean, I grew up knowing about Back to the Future, but the only exposure I had was regular TV and mm-hmm. had to sit through commercials and, you know, we didn't have cable, so we had to endure and watch it whenever it was on. And so uh, I ended up recording it and 
watching it over and over and over again because it's one of my favorite movies. So, And of course, we had the TV edits where they would change all the swears or perceived square swears and mm-hmm. edit for time. <laughs> yep, definitely. And sometimes that's, you know, that was a good thing, but sometimes it was really weird to see their mouth move in a different direction. Yeah, so. it's, it's a unique experience, I think, of it. Yeah, yeah. So one of, one of the first things that I'd really like to talk about is Marty McFly and Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I kept thinking about was 1985... Michael J. Fox was still doing Family Ties. Mm-hmm. And according to some information that I found out, uh, one of the cast members, Meredith Baxter, she was pregnant at the time. And mm-hmm. so he was carrying a lot more of the load for the show. And so Gary David Goldberg, he couldn't afford to let Michael J. Fox go. And so, uh, what is the name? Zemeckis, uh, Robert Zemeckis and, uh, Bob Gale, they were casting Eric Stoltz. Uh Um, but after six weeks, they found out that Eric Stoltz wasn't right for the part. And then they got Michael J. Fox back. And so Goldberg let him go off to make the film, but he could only work in the evening, like from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. of the, like, even with the daylight scenes being filmed on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So can can you imagine the type of schedule that that put Michael J. Fox through? Oh, yeah. And if there was a scheduling conflict, then family ties would, quote unquote, win the battle between scheduling. So uh, Family Ties was put as the priority. Um, and I think it's really interesting. It's some footage of Eric Stoltz is still available. Um, you can find it on YouTube. I think it might be on some of the Blu-ray extras. I have to check on that. Uh, don't don't take my word for that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but in his performance is more of a dramatic performance, um, which was one of the issues that Zemeckis had with it. Um, it didn't really balance the comedy aspect of the script. Mm-hmm. And so while he was a very fine actor, he wasn't the right actor. Yeah. And then with Eric Stoltz, he got in a fight with um, Thomas. Oh, what is his name? Thomas Wilson. Um, and Thomas Wilson really disliked him. And at one point it was going to come to blows. Oh my gosh. And, uh, Eric Stoltz was fired that very day that it was going to happen because it was going to happen during a scene. And like Wilson was hit hard by, um, Stoltz and Wilson wasn't even like a bully. You know, he wasn't really a bully. He uh-huh. he, uh, he didn't want to get a revenge, but like Stoltz, um, Stoltz, Stoltz really put put out a real punch against him, and it was just really odd 
for that whole situation. And then, like, I guess when <laughs> Eric Stoltz was leaving, uh, he was so, he was like a method actor. So he had to be called Marty McFly. And he had to be called Marty. And so when Christopher Lloyd heard Eric's name instead of Marty, he's like, oh, I thought his name was Marty the whole time. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Yeah, that was really funny because um, Christopher Lloyd just simply thought that Eric Stoltz's name was Marty. What a coincidence. <laughs> I know, right? So that was really funny. And, um, oh, and then, you know, the fact that, that Michael J. Fox, you know, some of the, the rumors that were spreading around were that, uh, Michael J. Fox, he, uh, didn't know how to ride a skateboard. And that was totally wrong because he did. He knew how. He, he grew up riding skateboards. Yeah, exactly. And, uh... So, I mean, you know, some people didn't think that he knew how to. And then one thing that I found interesting was that, you know, at the very beginning of the film where he goes to the Burger King drive through and grabs hold of the truck and starts riding down the street behind the truck, the driver of the truck uh, was uh, the stuntman. <laughs> yeah. For Marty? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, it was, uh, no, the stunt, uh, well, let's see. Oh, yes, it's, uh, no, the stunt coordinator. He was the stunt oh, coordinator. stunt coordinator. Uh, Walter Scott. So, I thought that was really cool. And, nice. uh, yeah, it's just, it was just really interesting to learn some of these facts because it's like, oh, I never knew that before. Mm-hmm. And then, um, knowing that, um, that when... Michael J. Fox pretended to be like Darth Vader. He played that tape labeled Edward Van Halen. Yeah. And it was like untitled. It was an untitled original that was written for the wildlife that actually, ironically, had Leah Thompson and Eric Stoltz. Oh. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Yeah. So they actually were able to use that song twice. So, um, but then, uh, one of the things I found interesting was that Christopher Lloyd was six one and Michael J. Fox, he was only five, four. He's like, he's tiny. He's like a, a inch taller than my wife. (laughs) So it's like, there's a, there's a difference there. Mm, Mm -hmm. It's like not very much, but, uh, Christopher Lloyd had to hunch. So, yeah, that's why he hunches, yeah. Yeah. It's, what's really funny is um, their first choice to play Doc Brown is John Lithgow. And oh, he's 6'4". Yeah. Like, could you imagine the hunch on that? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I think he even hunched in, well, like John Lithgow, I think he hunched in um, uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, Yeah. Oh, that's a good movie. I know. I did it on my show, so. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was such a, such a fun movie. Uh, But then also, okay, so here's some little technical details regarding uh, the DeLorean. Uh, 
and how with Doc Brown, when he first sends Einstein one in, one minute into the future, the time elapsed between when the DeLorean disappears and reappears and actually is one minute, 21 seconds. Now, would that be a coincidence for it being 1.21 gigawatts? <laughs> I think so. Sometimes writers like to repeat numbers. They do that a lot in Star Trek, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, the number yeah. Um, 47. Yep. 47 is uh, key in almost every single episode of Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes, sometimes writers sort of like to sprinkle those sorts of things throughout their work. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And then, did you ever wonder why Doc Brown would use gigawatts rather than gigawatts? You know, I did. And I read a little bit about this today, but I'll let you. Okay, so he had referred to it being gigawatts of electricity. And it's a now obscure but once standard pronunciation of the word gigawatts which is 1 billion watts. Nowadays, it's usually pronounced with a hard G, like gander or gold, but the Neo-Latin language gave it a soft G, and so his pronunciation of gigawatts is actually based upon a way a physicist with whom Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale met for the research. Mm -hmm. And so... They used that pronunciation because it was more accurate. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's like, hmm, does that solve the GIF, GIF problem? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That That is controversial territory. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> but it's kind of fun to talk about. Oh, so. yes. Oh, and then Christopher Lloyd based his performance upon Albert Einstein and Leopold Stokowski. The conductor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could totally <laughs> see that with his with his white hair and frizzy mm -hmm. look. And I gotta say, as we talked in pre-show, uh, the scene that makes the most impact to me is the scene where he redesigned the whole Hill Valley downtown and <laughs> when oh, he gets, in miniature. Yep, in miniature and gets the car ready and he's like, Alright, you hook up the elect er you get the car ready, I'll simulate the lightning <laughs> when he simulates it and he gets the, the power going, it's like the car burst into flames. Yep. And it goes riding off. And his look and his is just jaw priceless. Just drops like, in. <gasps> yeah. It's just so wonderful. It's like the key moment in one of the Back to the Future films that is forever in embedded in my memory. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so wonderful. What I like is that's um that becomes one of the repeating elements of the story, too. It comes back in the third movie. Yeah. With the miniature. Yeah. Yep. That is great, too. I love that miniature in that one, too. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. 
Um, I love those repeating elements throughout, oh, the, yeah. throughout the series. Yeah. Now, I don't think they did that in Back to the Future 2, though. No, they didn't do that one in Back to the Future 2. Yeah. But they did it in 3, and I, I oh, think sure. all, all together, it just made a wonderful trilogy, and um, in fact, one of the neat instances was Christopher Lloyd was talking about that if they were to do another film, he wanted it to be where um, he and Marty would go back to ancient Rome. Wouldn't that be cool? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why ancient Rome, but... What pops into my head is the Doctor Who episode in season four when they go to ancient Rome. Oh, uh, Not yes. ancient Rome, to Pompeii. Pompeii. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get the first guns of Peter Capaldi. So, yes. Yes. And then that comes up later in season nine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really impressed by that. Um, okay, so another thing I noticed is that there's a lot of talk regarding Ronald Reagan. Yes. And one of the things I really noticed was that um Ronald Reagan was really amused by Doc Brown's disbelief that an actor like him could become president and that he would have the projectionist stop the scene and play it again. And he liked it so much that in his 1986 State of the Union address, he said, they said in the film Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. (laughs) (laughs) And what was great about that was that the uh, the White House had to actually approve some of the lines that included Ronald Reagan in it. And I didn't realize that either. I was That's like, funny. oh my goodness. Yeah. But Ronald Reagan, he just got a kick out of the movie. And oh, yeah. And I loved that when um, he goes into Hill, when Marty goes into Hill Valley in 1955 there's the poster for the movie with Ronald Reagan and Barbara Stanwyck right mm-hmm. outside the theater. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then uh, and then one of the things with uh, Jane Wyman. Cause, oh, uh, yeah, his first wife. Yeah, because he was like, and I suppose that Jane Wyman was the first lady. Yeah, and, yeah. And she actually was married to him. Yep. And was, I thought that was just yeah. unique. Yeah. Uh, and and just, you know, a fun fun little fact that it came out at the very same time that that was happening. And then uh all right. So what musician was in was actually in this movie? Oh, um aren't aren't the news Huey Lewis and the News? Uh-huh. The the band Marty McFly's band when they audition? Actually, Huey Lewis was one of the judges. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yep. Because uh, when when Marty is being judged, the judge who stands up and says "You're just too darn loud" is Huey Lewis. <laughs> I love it, <laughs> and it, it's just so funny because it's ironic because they're actually playing one of his songs. Yeah, they're they're yeah. playing "Power of Love," so I thought that was great. All Didn't right, they go through a couple of iterations of Huey Lewis in the news. Like, trying to get a song to work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because um, they they 
they weren't sure if they wanted to add so much like rock music to mm-hmm. the the show and they chose power of love which is perfect for the movie yes. and then they also added um back in time back in which time to the end yeah because um uh Huey Lewis actually wrote that for the movie mm-hmm. because if you listen to the very end of that song Huey Lewis says gotta get back Marty mm-hmm. and, yeah and executives wanted to have the title of the song the title of the movie in the song mm-hmm. um, and that didn't work with power of love so that's why he did back in time yeah yeah. yeah, and it's just great. So, one other thing that I was thinking about is an actual character, but we may not think of it as a character. It's the car, the DeLorean. Oh, yes. <laughs> because they actually received, uh, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, they received a fan letter from John DeLorean because they had immortalized his car. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It is, yeah. And what an obscure, really otherwise poor car. (laughs) Yeah, because they went through three different cars for the movie. And and the car had so many problems, like like the hydraulic lifts for the the doors, they kept drooping. And so so, uh, Michael J. Fox, he would... He would bump his head several times uh, in in the, you know, like getting out of the car because of the doors. And I was like, oh my goodness. bump his head and he's so tiny. I know. I know. <laughs> it just blew my mind. And it's like, oh my goodness. And then one of the things I was thinking of was uh, with it... <laughs> that car being one of the worst cars of all um this is the only movie in the trilogy where we see the car actually have like frost on the outside of the car oh yeah yeah in the when Aini gets back yeah yeah Yeah. and then also like when doc first gets out of the car there's like all this smoke and Mm -hmm. nobody could even understand why it happened or how it happened and it just you know you just go with it (laughs) yeah and I was cold yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) but then you know just uh, one other thing about the car is that you know a lot of people thought that the movie was going to be like a drama action adventure and then they didn't realize that it was also going to be a comedy Mm -hmm. and so when Einstein goes back in time or goes forward in time they thought something horrible had happened to the dog at the test screening <laughs> they thought the dog had died or got fried or something because he oh disappeared oh no and then when he got back out they're like oh good <gasps> the dog's okay <laughs> poor Riney yep poor dog but uh, it just it really was a unique car and they even make made kits after the movie came out or I think yeah it it was after like Back to the Future 2 that they started making kits for cars to look like the DeLorean isn't that interesting 
that is. Uh, hopefully they they put in a better engine and better hydraulics. Oh, agreed. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I had seen a, uh image of a taxi cab that had been con- a converted kit for uh-huh. the DeLorean. And it looked really cool, but it's like, I wonder how that thing drove. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so some of that, like, the, the DeLorean seemed to be its own type of character. Oh, and then, yeah, it's very distinctive. Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody can recognize it. Like, if you... Right bite... down to the custom license plate. Yeah, out of time. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love it. Uh, but then also, like, when Marty would shift um, in the car, he kept on mm-hmm. slamming his, his elbow into the back of that area because you would always hear inside the car that he would shift, like, real hard, you know? Mm-hmm. But it was because he kept bumping bumping the back side <laughs> with his elbow. And, you know, you've got a camera in there and everything, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, my goodness, that had to be painful. That's <laughs> why the flux capacitor malfunctioned. That's why. That, <laughs> otherwise, we wouldn't have a good movie, huh? <laughs> uh, so... All right, let's see. Uh, One of the things that is kind of a unique little tidbit is that there's a sticker on Doc Brown's truck. You know, when he he meets Marty in the parking lot, um, that it says, one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of true for him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because, (laughs) I mean, he has some... Uh, mishaps with some plutonium and some Libyans. And some Libyans. <laughs> but then, you know, even to think about that point is that uh, one of the facts I found was they actually changed the um, oh, talking regarding the Libyans. Instead of calling them terrorists, they called mm-hmm. them nationalists. Mm-hmm. So they tried to make it more politically correct. And I don't know when they when they had reissued that. It may have been with the Blu-ray release, because I only have the DVD release. So... Mm. But it's a two-disc set, so, it, it you know, it's still really good. So... <laughs> yeah. I have... I was just watching the Blu-ray version, and I don't recall what they had said. Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure, but, you know, (laughs) it's one of those interesting things. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, like, looking at when Robert Zemeckis was actually trying to pitch the idea of the film, did you know he went to Disney first? Uh, Actually, he didn't go to Disney first. Or no, yeah, that's right. It was first with Columbia, I believe. That's right. Um, He started pitching this way back in uh, 81, Mm-hmm. And they kept going back and forth. And uh, at the time, comedies, like teen comedies, were kind of really raunchy, like Porky's and mm-hmm. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And, and so they the were Nerds. like, yep. yeah, yeah. Well, so they were like, you know, this is you know family friendly by comparison. Why don't you pitch it to Disney? So <laughs> um, that's what they did. And... I suppose you have the reason why Disney didn't like it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because uh, they thought that the premise of a mother falling in love with her son, albeit a twist of time travel, was too risque for the film Under the Banner. And No Oedipal complexes here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> oh, and then one of the things that they they weren't able to do with the film was one of the original ideas in the script was that Doc Brown and Marty were actually selling bootleg videos to fund oh, the time machine. And <laughs> it was it was removed by Universal because they didn't want to promote m- movie piracy. Yeah, right? <laughs> which one which one makes sense? Uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, back in the time where we had all those FBI warnings on the front of our tapes. Yeah. Yeah, and like even the one that I was watching today had that oh. warning. Hmm. So, hmm, that's rather interesting. I've started um, skipping through them. I just stopped noticing. Yeah, yeah, because they... Don't at you me, know, FBI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a... Not to get off too far on a topic, but there's a really hilarious um, recording, like a video on the show The IT Crowd. Oh, Yeah. And the the anti piracy warning, mm-hmm. where at the end of the 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 commercial, the FBI is standing right behind the girl, <laughs> and he like shoots her. It's like, man, these anti piracy videos are getting really mean. <laughs> so it's like, don't don't copy movies. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. So getting back to some of the info that I had on this, um, one of the things that I found interesting was that they also made several, several Pepsi references in the movie. Yes. And, like, do you have any information on that? Or do you want me to talk a little, a little bit about it? I always figured it was a product sponsorship. Oh, it was. Yeah. 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 Because they had the rival with Coke mm-hmm. and um <laughs> and like even in the first scene where Marty orders a Pepsi, uh he's like, What's a Pepsi? A Pepsi and, free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the only one that He orders a tab first though. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because he's like, What's you haven't even been here, so it's like, yeah, right, you're yeah. not starting. If you want a tab, that. you have to order something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just kind of unique how Pepsi was trying to do some product placement, and then they had yeah. the what Texaco and uh, yeah. different things, and then that was carried over in Back to the Future too. Yeah, where we kind of see the future of Texaco and Pepsi. Yeah. I'm kind of disappointed we don't have those funky Pepsi bottles now. I know. Now that we're I past know. 20, yeah. It would now be that we're nice. Past 2017. And then even the fact that we don't have laceless shoes. Come on. Mm-hmm. What's the deal? We don't have laceless shoes? I think there were some promotional power laces that Nike put out. For yeah, like... I think those were actually pretty recent, weren't they? Yeah. So. But they were like promotional items. 
Oh, Get yeah. on it, Nike. <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the things I found unique is that uh, Robert Zemeckis dubbed the picture the film that would not rap. And he recalled it that it was because they shot the film at night, after <laughs> night, and he was like always half asleep and the fattest and most out of shape. And he said that he was the most sick that he ever was. <laughs> and it was because he was filming night after night. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. So, yeah, definitely. Well, I can imagine that the movie itself is so impeccably put together mm-hmm. that, you know, planning each scene and setting up the shots and going through you know, rehearsals for it. Like, everything seems like it was done flawlessly. So I feel like that would have taken up a lot of the time leading up to the shoots as well. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it seems... All right, so this is just our opinion on this, but our opinion counts, and it matters because this is one of the best... It's almost a perfect time-traveling adventure movie. Because they did it so brilliantly and so well and had, you know, had the perfect type of humor in it to make it just wonderful. Well, aside from that, I I find it to be a very, very good case for the craft of filmmaking as well. Um, I mean, from the script, the script Mm -hmm. is tight the editing is great the the shots like the cinematography is very creative like none of it is really stagnant they do really interesting things with perspective and like i was looking at uh the shot where they're in the 50s diner and you see george mcfly eating from profile and then you see marty lean out from him and just looking so surprised that that's his dad and I loved the setup of that shot and and then all of a sudden he like turns and the shot changes but it's it's almost seamless yeah so I I feel like the um the storyboarding and the editing for this movie were so meticulously done um, I, I find it to be a really good example of the craft. Oh, yeah, totally. And one of the things that I found interesting, when we're talking about the diner where Marty first meets his dad mm-hmm. and calls Doc Brown, it's also the same diner interior in which Johnny Hooker, which is Robert Redford, meets Lonigan. Robert Shaw in The Sting. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's the very same diner. I did not know that, and that's my mother's favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's my wife's. She really (laughs) likes that movie. So, so yeah, and I didn't realize that until I was researching about it. And I was like, oh, that is super cool. So That is really interesting. Yeah, I, I love it when they, like... They redress sets and you have that sort of trivia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then another thing that really got me is that uh, the clock tower and that whole uh, area of in front of the clock tower, that's a backlot set. It is, at, yes. At Universal. And they actually had a fire three times on that lot, on that set. Oh. Um, and it, it almost, like, destroyed uh, the clock tower at one point. And, uh... Is this during see. shooting or afterwards? It wasn't during shooting at all. Okay. Like, it okay. wasn't... Because that would have been dramatic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that would, have, <laughs> that would have changed some things. They would have probably had to change some viewpoints or something but but yeah they were they had, already on a tight schedule too yeah and it was i mean the the fires were actually later like mm -hmm. later after the movie was long done and everything so but i i found that really interesting and i didn't even know that the clock tower area was a back lot it didn't look like one <laughs> <laughs> So that made it even more believable. <laughs> and I liked it. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, trying to see where I want to go with, with this. Do you have any thoughts? Like like any uh, tidbits you want to bring out? Ooh, tidbits. Um, you know, I probably should, as I did... A whole bunch of reading on this <laughs> but uh i guess nothing is really coming to mind you covered a good chunk of it yeah i i i tried to and some stuff like when i was doing my research for the movie there's there's a lot of stuff that i didn't really think that i needed to cover i mean yeah. there there was stuff in here about how um crispin glover uh Oh, yeah, 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 the How, rights to image thing. Well, not only that, but uh, he, uh, one of his favorite uh, magazines was Amazing Tales or something, or Strange Tales, oh, and yeah. that's that's still made. That, it is, That yes. book is still made, and... Yeah, um, and it was an anthology series for a while, I think, on television. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... Danny Elfman did some of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those were good. I have some of his music on that, so... Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Danny Elfman fan, so I like doing stuff like that. I am as well. <laughs> Finding those little tidbits. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I really, really enjoy talking about is the whole clock tower sequence like the the whole that ending sequence is just like it, it's perfectly it, it seems like it's perfectly timed and and you yes. have the wind going and you have the storm clouds and you have doc hanging from oh, gosh. the clock even tower the lead up. even yeah. the lead up to all of that is oh, so well timed you know starting with like dun dun damn Donna, Donna, damn, damn. <laughs> I love that. That whole lead up to it. Because <laughs> he's looking at his watch and yeah. he's like, he's late. Where were you? Yeah. <laughs> and and the whole sequence of like even way before that when uh, they're uh, 
they're at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, and Marty has to do the guitar work, and um, uh-huh. it's not actually, of course, we know it's not him doing the singing. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I think it was, oh, who was it? There was a, it was, um, I have it in my notes. I know I do. Um, oh, I can't find it right now. It was just like a little, little tidbit of information that there was another guy that was actually credited as Marty McFly of, you know, the singing voice. And then another thing about that was, um, that Michael J. Fox, he used like different, um, Oh, uh, uh, different changes. It was Mark Campbell from Jack Mack and the heart attack. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then one of the things that I noticed was that, like, he used different styles of, like, that last sequence of him doing Johnny Be Good. He used, oh, yeah. like, things of Eddie Van Halen. He used yeah. uh, different, like, well-known uh, guitarists and, you know, yep. things that, that <laughs> those rockers would actually do, like, knock over the the amplifier and yep <laughs> and it was you know it's just a lot of fun because then at one point they just all stopped because yeah they were like uh i don't know what to do to this this is we can't really dance to it they, they weren't prepared for that no They're not prepared for eddie van halen yeah not exactly <laughs> i thought it was a an interesting thing though Marvin Barry and the Starlighters, um, mm-hmm. they actually listed like who who those different people were because it was Harry Waters Jr., which was the lead vocals. Then it was Tommy Thomas, which was on saxophone. Then it was Granville Danny Young, which did the double bass. And that was a really cool instrument. I really liked that um, that instrument in that movie because it's like, how would you play that? And he had to be really talented to be able to get that right. Oh, and yeah. then um, that's a difficult. I used to play bass, stand up bass. Oh, and nice. That's a yeah. It's a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. David Harold Brown. He was on drums, and then Lloyd L. Tolbert was on piano. So I found that really interesting. That uh, you know, it listed those different people. As to what uh, action they would be doing. And it's like, okay, so this is this artist. This is this artist. Mm-hmm. And it was great to to get in on that. Yeah. Um, and then when we talk about, like, even... Okay, so even the sequence where Doc Brown is sliding down the wire from the clock tower to the ground... That wasn't um, Christopher Lloyd. It was his stuntman, and I can't remember his name. I know it's in my notes, but I can't remember his name. And <laughs> and he got credited. He actually got paid for doing that scene three times, and he didn't have to be in the next two movies. <laughs> so he got a paycheck for being in those movies 
without having to actually be in them, which was pretty cool. So That's a pretty good gig. Yeah. It's like, yeah, give me that job. I like that. So Well, they kept on having to do the the clock tower sequence too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And it's and it's so it almost gets drilled into your head that that's a very important scene. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, and then uh, Claudia Wells. You know why right. Claudia Wells walked away uh, or had to s- end with the first movie? Wasn't there an illness in her family? Uh, she, her mother had cancer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and so then they got Elizabeth Shue mm-hmm. to do the next two movies. Yes. And I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, she was. Her family was dealing with, um, oh, what is it? Just uh, cancer and everything. And it's like, oh yeah. man, that's really stinks. So yeah, I had I had wondered that for years. I mean, you know, way before we had like IMDb and you know access to trivia pages like that. Oh yeah. So I only found that out relatively recently. Yeah. Oh, and then uh, something I learned about Leah Thompson. And, like, her character, uh, Lorraine McFly, uh-huh. that she was kind of having these alcohol problems throughout uh, throughout the movie. Or, oh, you know, yeah. she had be, become an alcoholic at the beginning of the movie. And at the end, she wasn't even an alcoholic. But, mm-hmm. uh, but the interesting thing was, was that when her name appeared for uh, c- the cast... Her name appeared above the drunk man at on the bench. Oh no. So it was like, oh, here we go. We're just going to tease this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz she was, you know, she was like everybody who is everybody drinks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, and it took 3 hours to get her into makeup for turning her oh, from for 23 her years old to 47 it's like man, yeah that would take a while so but they had to do some really amazing work to get that get that right yeah lots of prosthetic work for her face and yeah and one of the things that i always found interesting was like even with the uh the the car the delorean and how they had to time like the pyrotechnics with the fire that was on the the cement you know and i know that's some sort of like chemical that they put down to be able to trigger that but i i don't know how they did it (laughs) it's like that's that's always one of my favorite parts to read about with movies about doing effects um maybe more specifically with horror movies i love reading about gore effects and how all that's done but with movies like this as well, I like to read, um, uh, like the art of books where they go oh, into yeah. how mm-hmm. things were done and how they were made. I love that. I absolutely do. Yeah. I, I really like that too, because there was, um, I used to have the back to the future, like companion book and it was, it was uh-huh. not, not super thick. But it was like a tabletop book, like a like a coffee table book, uh-huh. and it had like behind the scenes uh, scenes where like 
there was one scene where the rain was cheating on a test and you could only see that in <laughs> this black and white picture because uh, Martin Michael J. Fox was looking in on her in one of her classes and he could <laughs> see her cheating on a test. And uh, then you, I mean, because I never really knew what Eric Stoltz looked like, mm-hmm. but in that book you could see what he looked like. And it's like, yeah, I kind of see why he couldn't be, wouldn't have been a good fit for the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eric Stoltz, he's, he has a very serious demeanor when he acts. Um, um, he was in the movie Mask. Okay. Um, which was a very dramatic film. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of been his wheelhouse. He's also um, much taller than uh, Michael J. Fox. He's about six feet tall. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's a ginger also. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He's a redhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, that would have been interesting. <laughs> they probably would have had to dye his hair or something. Possibly. Maybe. I mean, they do. I they they did do about four weeks of shooting with him. I think. Mm, yeah. Um, so oh the yeah, because they they didn't they didn't change they did change his hair because there is one scene where they keep part of like his back profile uh-huh. where you don't you don't see his face but you just see the back of him for just a brief moment and then it switches over to Michael J. Fox. That's interesting. So. They have very different body types. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think it was he's probably very, camera. He's taller and slender, and Michael J. Fox is much more compact. Yeah. <laughs> he's a compact little man. So. <laughs> all right. No offense to compact little men. Nope, nope, nope. None at all. We like None it. None at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so now I thought we could talk about a little bit on the actual score of the movie. Yay! Um, Because I really, like, I wore out, I originally, when I first started listening to the Back to the Future soundtrack, I had the cassette tape of it. Uh Uh-huh. And then (laughs) I wore it out, and, like, I wore it out so bad that I ended up, I was playing it, and the tape just kind of screeched to a halt. Oh no. Did it snap and jam in your player? No, no. But it just like stopped. I've had that happen. (laughs) It was, it was so stretched and so worn out that I was like, no, I don't have the soundtrack anymore. (laughs) And it was at a point where, you know, CDs were bound, bountiful Mm -hmm. and, so I found the CD of Back to the Future, and I still have that very CD. And is that the one that's mostly uh, like Hugh Lewis and the uh, the Marvin Berry stuff? Yep, yep. It yeah. has like Mr. Sandman on there, and yep. Uh, it's got it's got Earth a weird Angel. yeah. It's got a weird Eric Clapton song on there. Yeah, is, yeah, heaven is one step away. Yeah, <laughs> and it's in a really odd place in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then there was this other one that was really, really strange called Time Bomb Town. And it's only in one scene in the movie where uh, it's an alarm that goes off 
for Marty when he's supposed to get up at one fifteen. Uh huh. And you hear that's it weird. That, very that's briefly. such a weird inclusion. Yeah, and it's like, why would you include this song? And because it has the word time in it. <laughs> I guess I don't know, but <laughs> Alan Silvestri's score it didn't begin until like eighteen minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Because there was other things going on. Well, yeah, it opens up with the ticking clocks, and mm-hmm. that goes for the whole beginning until um, until Power of Love starts. Yeah, um, and but for the live concert performances of Back to the Future, they actually do have uh, so they do have a Silvestri cue to open the film because oh, obviously yeah. you're there for you know a performance mm-hmm. so, so they do the short jingle don't they for the the back to the future logo did they do yeah. that uh yeah they, it's it's a suite that was arranged oh for, that's cool yeah i didn't even know they did that that's pretty awesome yeah so that whole scene does have underscore for the live performances that's cool That's really cool. Because I thought it was interesting. Some of the notes I learned was that Steven Spielberg had some reservations about hiring Alan Silvestri. Mm -hmm. And he had been unimpressed by his score for Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone, yeah. Yeah. And during the preview screening in which the film was accompanied by the temporary track, um, Spielberg commented to Zemeckis that he really enjoyed the grand cue and it was the sort of music the film needed mm-hmm. and he was unaware that it was one of Sylvester's cues <laughs> and that's pretty awesome because he was uh he wasn't I mean he was a producer wasn't he Steven Spielberg he, he was um uh Zemeckis had been friends with uh Spielberg and he had been trying to get Spielberg involved in it, but he didn't want to have the movie just happen just because he was friends mm-hmm. with Spielberg. It yeah. was a whole thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, ahead. Spielberg, he, he had been spoiled for so long working with John Williams. <laughs> true. I mean... <laughs> that's, that's very true. Of course he's going to expect, you know, big and epic and want that. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the thing about... Alan Silvestri's score, though, is it's wonderful. It's so good. And it's so iconic. And I really like that the music actually begins for his score when the DeLorean is revealed. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because you get this like little chime and it's just perfect. And I... <laughs> I yes, just, I, I love that chime. It. I love the reveal chime every time it comes in. The da 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 da. Yeah, and then sometimes it goes into like the the scary reveal music after it. The bum bum bum. Yeah, I, I I love that that combination of cues. Um, but what what really stood out to me um, while watching. And like really paying attention to the music is how sparse the score actually is. Like, it is very sparsely spotted. The movie, mm-hmm. it's not wall to wall music at all. There's only about 
see, like on the Entrada release, there's only like 50 minutes of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was uh, 30th anniversary edition, wasn't it? That there was uh, all three of them were released as two disc uh, yeah. releases. That it was uh, Back to the Future, and then it was Back to the Future Part Two, and then they also did a Back to the Future Three, and um, and now I mean those are still available through Entrada, which is pretty cool, mm. and. Not the first one. Really? It's no yeah, longer available? That sold out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And they're limited edition. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> it is Back to the Future. It is the key movie that drives this whole series. So... <laughs> but one thing that I really like about it is that Alan Silvestri has a unique sound and oh yes I just I think that Alan Silvestri nailed this movie like so good and I'm so excited that he's actually doing the score to Ready Player One mm-hmm. and one of the things that I was found, found what I found interesting was uh in fact the date of this podcast uh tomorrow uh i have the interview with keve cohen and michael nielsen for their score on forza 7 the motorsport video game score Mm -hmm. they do they have a company known as ninja tracks and so they do film music for movie trailers okay and so they did the Ready Player One trailer two of the film, you know, for okay. the release. And so at the very end, you hear the Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah. Which is that chime. And it's like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yes! I am, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing, to, to hearing Sylvester nod to to Sylvester. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's key, you know, because even though it's being directed by Steven Spielberg, um, having Alan Sylvester come on board and do the score is just going to be so fantastic because mm-hmm. of so many of the, the films that are, are involved and, I mean, the DeLorean's in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just that theme it just gets me every time it it's like it's like listening to the superman score for the very first time you know the <laughs> bum 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 yeah and you know it just gets your blood pumping for that and then with back to the future you have that bum 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 and it's just so wonderful. Yeah, that sort of um, oh, there's a rhythmic quality to that. That it it's, it's not very found identi- anymore. It, well, it's very identifiable in a mm-hmm. lot of Celestri's music. I find. Um, like, what example can you give me? I feel like you could hear it in um, "Who Framed Roger Rabbit." Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, maybe 
Do you think he brought Not any the Predator of that? movies, but those are greats also. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what about some of his more modern stuff? Like maybe um, Forrest Gump or... Uh... I think you can sort of hear... I mean, I'm not going to say Forrest Gump, um, but you can sort of hear that rhythmic quality um in captain america the first avenger i believe oh yeah yeah exactly and then also the avengers the first avengers movie um oh my god i can't wait for the next two yeah that's gonna be pretty exciting more sylvester oh really he's doing the score for both of them yes oh that's fantastic that is fantastic oh i'm really excited now yeah (laughs) <laughs> I can't open. Um I I really like how there's just you know throughout the whole score of Alan Silvestri's music how you know you've got that we've talked about the DeLorean reveal and like the 85 Twins Pines Mall mm-hmm. and how it has that theme give us the first heroic charge for the film and it just was so exciting and I mean when I first watched this movie it's like this was the movie that I would go to and if it wasn't this movie that I would go to it would be Empire Strikes Back (laughs) (laughs) because those would be I would go back and forth between both of those movies and uh but this one I would go to all the time because of so many iconic scenes. Oh, and one scene that I always remember is where he hooks up to the amplifier. Yes, and he gets blown back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And did you know that amplifier was only like 15, 20 watts? <laughs> I did not know that, but... They made it, they made it seem like it was this giant amplifier. <laughs> oh, I'm most concerned so for Michael J. Fox's safety now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was all pyrotechnics and wind machines, probably. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the pieces that we were talking about is the clock tower piece. Mm-hmm. Now that piece is like nonstop music for a whole ten minutes, and it doesn't oh, yes. matter. It doesn't matter what version of the score that you have. That piece is like almost ten minutes long no matter what one it is. And Mm -hmm. I love it. It's so great. And it even gets those little hints of when Doc looks at his watch because Sylvester stops the music at those points. And he's like, dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, and it it was just great. This movie is so strongly motifed that you know exactly what is happening when you listen to the music. You know what is being shown, who is in the scene, what is happening. Um, Yeah. It it has such a strong connection to what's happening in the movie and what's being shown. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I love it too. It's just, it's so good to see a film have a score that you can actually pick out where the music is actually taking place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to downgrade some of the 
modern scores today, but some music today, it seems like they don't... Melody has lost their rhythm. Like, or certain certain composers, mm-hmm. they, they don't know where their melody is and, you know, how to bring out a theme into a yeah. movie to make a scene iconic. Yeah, it's a lot more amorphous now, I think. Um, what do you mean by that? Um, like... It's not firm, really. Okay. Um, it's more freeform and a little blurred. Okay. I yeah, feel. I get that. Um, yeah. I totally understand that. Yeah. Because it just seems that way, you know? It just seems like certain scores today. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> I should. I should. Uh, scores but... today. <laughs> Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't get me started. Oh, I know. I know. I won't get started. Every single podcast I do, I get started, and nothing good ever comes from it. All right. Well, we won't get <laughs> you started. How about that? How about we actually talk about some of the cues that I'm actually going to play? Yeah. So the first cues I'd like to play is the, the DeLorean reveal, mm-hmm. then Einstein disintegrated, which I like that title of that track. And then... It's like a fake uh, spoiler. I know. I know. And then 85 Twins Pine Mall. Now, mm-hmm. what do you think about these cues? Um, I think they're a good setup. Um, and it sort of establishes the sound that you get in the 80s. Um mm-hmm. And that is especially good because as soon as Marty ends up in the 50s, everything starts sounding kind of dreamy and weird at first. Yeah. Um, So I really like having that setup and then an immediate contrast. Yeah, exactly. Because once he goes back to the 50s, you almost have that instant point of, Mr. Sandman. Yeah, yeah. And when he's going through the town square, mm-hmm. um, Sylvester's music is a lot more eerie. Um, oh, yeah, I noticed it has, that. It has sort of a sci-fi quality to it. Mm-hmm. So, what I always find with these is that I'm always in awe with this music. That it when... It's in the movie, and it, like, emphasizes to me how important the action for the scene is and how, you know, we get our first look at the DeLorean and, and how we actually get our first look at Doc Brown, you know? And he's mm-hmm. in that white outfit, and it, <laughs> and Marty looks at him, and he's like, is that a diva suit? <laughs> yes. So I found that really interesting. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and even, you know, it shows us the adventure that the lead character, which is Marty, he's going to be going on. And Mm -hmm. it's pretty exciting uh, to get into that. So, So now I'll play those cues.
Thank <laughs> you. 
All right. So next, Ta-da. what I'd like <laughs> what I'd like to do is play Retrieve the DeLorean, one point twenty one gigawatts. Mm-hmm. The picture, the picture fades, and skateboard chase. Now, what do you think of these? Skateboard chase is actually one of my standout cues for this. It score. is for me too. Yeah, really I love is. the skateboard chase. That's that's one of my all time favorite cues in the whole score. Next mm-hmm. to like that that piece right there, and the clock tower clock sequence. Tower. Yes, is. <laughs> by far the two two pieces that ultimately stand out to me and stand the test of all three movies because they even do it in Back to the Future 2 mm-hmm. in a way <laughs> yeah yeah well just as a lot of the script has a reprisal quality in the sequels so too does the score mm-hmm. and I love how it all works together like that yeah and uh, I really found even the the sequence of the picture and even the picture fades, it gives us this, like, Alan Silvestri, he, he gave us this, like, you know, kind of a Twilight Zone feel mm-hmm. to that, that cue because it's so surreal and it's like, oh, you're family's disappearing it's like no what's going on and uh it's just really iconic and it makes the movie stand on its own and say you need to pay attention to this movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i i really love these pieces as well and it really builds character for the film so now i'll play those Thank you. 
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I know, it's sad. But but today, the nice thing... Let's listen to more cues. Exactly, we're going to. (laughs) Because we're going to listen to Clock Tower, 4x4, Doc Returns, and the end credits. Now, Kristen, what do you think of these cues, and how important are they to the end of the movie? Oh, well... I think we've gone into clock tower ad nauseum, but uh, just to reiterate, <laughs> agreed. That is that is a heck of a cue, yeah. like top notch. Um, yeah. Now getting into the end of the movie, it's it's interesting because you now sort of have an alternate reality, and you mm-hmm. have the music sort of playing you through that um you know in the beginning doc dies and then you know the whole thing changes Mm -hmm. um in the end and i feel like the music really reflects that as well yeah yeah Yeah. most definitely and the thing that really stands out to me is the ending sequence of when he actually pulls into their driveway and uh-huh. um, docks in these strange clothes and it's like kind of all futuristic. Oh, and yes. he's got that Mr. Fusion, which is like a, it's part Mr. of a coffee, coffee maker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just hilarious because it's, it's actually, you know, what fuels his vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but that whole ending sequence is just really unique. And as, you know, as Ronald Reagan had said, where we're going, we don't need roads. Yes. And Immediately that's... setting up the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes it so exciting is like people were waiting and waiting for a sequel to come out. And it was mm-hmm. what, Four or five years before it actually see, came out. A six, a seven, eighty. Four years. Four years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it came out in eighty nine. Yeah, and that's hard to believe because they got them to look almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't really change, and the only yeah, person they, had they to recast re-perform. was yeah, yeah, and they did slightly change it in Back to the Future too, like the yeah, wording. Some some inflections are changed Mm -hmm. um and naturally jennifer's different yeah Um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like wow her eyes got bigger (laughs) yeah yeah she She got a little shorter (laughs) yeah (laughs) i wonder why uh but you know i couldn't have said it better myself you know how we've been talking about the whole action sequences we have the the return of doc brown and then Mm -hmm. even the end credits it just you know it really draws us into this ending of the movie and then um i don't know like on the blu-ray does it still have the to be continued yes to be continued okay because that's what it is on the dvd release but i guess on the videotape release it they didn't have that because they thought it was just going to be a standalone movie Hmm. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, but I guess I don't recall that because I didn't really have a proper 
<laughs> a proper VHS release of it. You know, I have to agree because every time that I would want to watch the ending sequ- ending credits, like I always liked watching the credits because I was interested in who was in the movie, what yeah. person did what and everything. And uh, when it would show on TV, they would cut it off early because yeah. they were like, oh, here's the news. <laughs> Yeah. What? I'm not done watching my movie. <laughs> I mean, I did remember my my television bootleg VHS of Back to the Future Part Two yeah. having to be concluded on it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's you know one of those things. So, <laughs> <laughs> what I'd like to ask you, Kristen, is where can people find you? Uh, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at KB for now. That's KB F O R N O W. You can also find FSM online on Twitter, and that handle is FSM Online Mag. And the website is FSM Online Mag.com. We recently released our January issue. The cover story is Hostiles by Max Richter. Oh. And we have our annual year in review. Nice. That's pretty cool. To, uh, I'll have to look at my email and read that because yeah. I'd like to I'd like to know what, you know, what the year in review uh, is for movie scores, because I mean, I did my own review. I know mm-hmm. Eric Woods is doing his own uh, review of the year and doing his favorite scores of the year, which is pretty cool. Um, well, I don't think have, that's come out yet. See. One, two, three, four. Yeah, we have five different 2017 in review articles. Oh, wow. So, yeah, okay. so we have one from Kyle Rennick, um, one from John and Al Kaplan, uh, one from Kerry Wong, one from Chris Hadley, which is about uh, vintage releases from the past year. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, Sean Wilson. Nice. So... You know, a, a good array of our writers contributed yeah, to this. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I honestly want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank um, you so much. This is a lot of fun and one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it really, I mean, I, I was so excited to be able to talk about it and be able to share it with someone because mm-hmm. sometimes when I do a show by myself, sometimes I don't get to get a good interaction because I'm just myself, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, it's it's good to nerd out with another person. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So I'd also like to thank Alexander Shebel for his excellent intro that he composed for the show. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Um, I'm on various different areas. You can find me at soundtrackalley.net, which is my main main place, and... You can get the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, I'm at Randall Andrews one on Twitter, and you can email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. And so all those links will be in the show notes. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.